0: Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Yeah, you glad to be in the house of the Lord on this fine Veterans Day weekend? Now, you guys know that we, we did recognize our veterans last week. We had an amazing event on Saturday for veterans. And if you weren't able to be here, I'm sorry you missed it. But I did want to take a chance once again to say thank you for serving. If you're a veteran, give them a round of applause. We appreciate you so much. And uh, also, you guys know what happened this weekend, right? We've been praying for it, preparing for it. Awaken Tijuana happened this weekend. On Friday, we had hundreds of people that got ministered to at Awaken Aid. They came and got food and clothing and medical treatment. It was amazing, and then on Saturday, yesterday, we had the Awakened Crusade. And I want to tell you, we had probably some of the worst warfare that we've ever experienced, and I'm not using that term lightly. It was crazy. Uh, we found out that the production company that we'd hired to help us with sound lights and video and all of that stuff, none of it was coming through. It, it was not going to show. It's been prepared months in advance. It just didn't happen, something occurred, and and so on Saturday morning at 8 a.m., three bands showed up ready for their sound check, and we had no stage, no sound, no lights. It's crazy, right? And so some people were even saying, you're going to have to cancel the event if the speakers aren't up by a certain time, we're, we're pulling the plug, all of this stuff, and and God just pulled it all together. We had found out on Friday night, as we had a couple of guys from here load up all of our production equipment and take it to Tijuana. That's why we have one singer. We literally have two mics that are working, I think. Praise God, praise God. God totally brought everything together there for an amazing event. I wanna show you just a little clip, an 11 second clip of the altar call from last night, are you ready for this? Check this out. Yeah, I want to point out that all of those people you see standing in front of the stage are the thousands that came forward for the altar call. Thousands that came forward, and we praise Jesus. Now. There were people that were lined up outside for hours to get in. We had orphanages coming. We had churches that were bringing busloads of people from their communities. Uh, We had rehabs coming. Government officials were coming. The media was there. The government officials were coming up asking Pastor Derek, why would you do this for free? We do not understand what you're doing. And it was such a testimony of the love of God to go into that community just to share Jesus and just to help. And so it was amazing. Over 20,000 people attended the crusade. Thousands of people came forward. I don't know what the number is yet. You're going to hear more about it next week. But isn't God amazing? Thank you so much for your prayers. Thank you for giving. Thank you for being part of that event. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you so much. We're grateful, God. Our hearts are grateful for the people that you touched and saved in Tijuana. We're grateful, Father, for the people that that had known you, that had walked away, the prodigals that came back to you. We're thankful, God, just for the work that you did there and we know that you are a big God and you see people all over the world and you see every need, every heart. God, you're right here. You desire to do a work in our lives. And so, Father, we open ourselves up to you and we ask you to teach us through your Holy Spirit By your word, God, open it up to us. Let us understand what you have for us today. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Here we go. We're going to read from John chapter 6. Open your Bible. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. We're not going to read that whole passage right now, but we're going to start with it. And um, we're going to stand. So if you're able to stand, please do. And we're going to read just part of that passage and get into the word. It says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he is sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. All right, you can be seated. <clears throat> So just a little bit of chronology from the beginning of chapter 6, because this is a long chapter. Remember, the crowd had been following Jesus, right? We had the 5,000 people that were miraculously fed with a few loaves and fish. Remember that story? But we know it was even more than 5,000, because it said 5,000 men. There were also women and children. Maybe there were ten to 15,000 people there. And Jesus fed them miraculously. So after that, Jesus told his disciples, he said, get in a boat, go to the other side, but Jesus did not go with them in the boat. So then we find out that Jesus walks on water, right, that this is all in chapter six. Now, it's the next morning where we pick up our story. The crowd goes across the water looking for the disciples and Jesus, and he finds, they find them over there, and they say to Jesus, Rabbi, How did you get here? What's up? How did you get all the way over here? We know you didn't take a boat. And he didn't answer their question. He didn't answer that question. It wasn't important. What he did is he went directly to their motivation for seeking him out. And he said, you know what? You're not looking for the signs. You're here because you got free food. Now, what does that mean? You're not looking for the signs. He was, Jesus was saying, you're not looking for a sign of who I am. You're not seeking to really know me. You just want another piece of bread. You just want some more food. You're wanting to get that quick fix. You're wanting to have your need met, but you're not really wanting to know who I am. So he challenges them. They're looking for the quick benefits. But before we judge them too quickly... I think we should consider that these are real people with real needs. They've been under the occupation of Rome for some time. Maybe some of them are living in poverty. Maybe it was their last meal that they ate yesterday, right? Maybe some of them are sick or they're unable to work and they're really in need and they're really coming to Jesus because they really want a piece of bread. They really want to be fed. Maybe some of them were just lazy. Wanting a free meal, maybe. But each one of those people had a story. Everybody does. Everybody has a story. They have a real thing that's going on, and Jesus saw them, and he miraculously fed them. But now he's calling them out on the fact that they just want the next quick thing. He's trying to bring some realization to them. And I think we should realize that many of us came to God the same way. We came to him, or have once before, come to him just wanting him to meet a need that we couldn't meet ourselves. We threw up a prayer to him because we couldn't meet that need. We, we needed something miraculous to occur. We went to him for that. But deep down in our heart, whether we realized it or not, we had no intention of following further. We were just hoping that maybe he could do something for us. The problem is the crowd that day wanted something for free. They didn't want to know who Jesus was. It was as if they were saying, just give me the goods. Just give me the goods. And that's our natural desire to get benefits from God without any real transformation. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wanted something from God, but you didn't really want to have to earn it or You didn't want to have to do what he said, you didn't want to have to change, you didn't want to have to hear the message or whatever, you just came to get the free hamburger, or you came to to get the makeover, or you came for whatever reason, you didn't really want to hear it. This is a problem today, where the people of God, or the people come to God with a desire for that quick fix, and when they don't get it in their time frame that they're demanding it, they get disillusioned, and they begin to disbelieve. And sadly, the American church has kind of played into that idea. I want you to think about this. There are churches full of people who are simply there to get benefits. They think that that's all there is to Christianity. And it makes me think of those resorts who um, put out those ads where they're like, hey, man, if you come here for three days, it'll be free. Or it's like $150 three days in paradise. Three days and two nights, or three nights and four days. Paradise, and all you have to do is sit through our 45-minute presentation. You guys know what I'm talking about. You have seen those, and some of you have even gone to them, and you're like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to go through the hell of the presentation for those three free days, and you weigh it out with your spouse or something? And you're like, yeah, it's worth it it's worth it. And you go and you live it up and the whole time you're dreading that presentation and you tell, you work it out with each other. You're like, no matter what they say, the answer is (laughs) no, no matter what they say. And if I pull on my ear, you know, that's that bring out this story because we have to have a cover story. We're not going any further. We're not buying this timeshare. Right, and you. But you're just like you're dreading it, and and it's so funny. We had a a friends who recently did one of those things, and I was teasing them. I told the husband, I said, "Ooh, she's gonna sign, she's gonna fall for it." He's like, "She better not!" I'm like, oh, what's gonna happen?" It didn't. But um, you know, that's and it serves the resorts. They get what they what they market for. It's okay that you do that, but unfortunately, I think that. Sometimes in an effort to lure people into a declining church the American church has done much the same thing many teachers and pastors have stopped teaching the truth of God's word afraid that it turns people off or that they'll be labeled archaic or intolerant and then after people uh, start coming then they have to beg them to get involved in things beg them to be part of programs because they've lured them under the pretenses of, really, all you have to do is grab your coffee, come in, sit down, and take a nap. And those churches have to keep the excellent benefits coming. They have to keep the show going, and they have to offer entertainment to keep the crowd. And that has led much of the American church to believe that Christianity is a bless-me club. And the truth is, as believers, we are incredibly blessed and it is a blessing to be in church, but I want to tell you right now there had be better be times when we feel the need to repent, times when we sense the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts that we need to change. If we are not hearing the Word of God taught and not sensing the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, something is terribly wrong. The Christian life is full and abundant. There's joy in the Lord and God's love is perfect and passionate and fervent and relentless. But this includes challenging us and disciplining us as well as blessing us. Let's get back to the passage. Jesus responded to the crowd that they should not work for the food that perishes. You know that you eat and is eliminated from the body. But you should work for the food that leads to eternal life which the Son of Man gives, right? And I'm sure that Jesus was trying to get them to lift their gaze off of the natural to the supernatural, off of the natural food to the spiritual thing he was trying to convey. And Jesus does the same thing to us all the time. He meets us at our point of need and he uses it to direct our attention and our focus to the eternal, to bring us to him, He takes the things in our lives that are ugly and he makes them beautiful. He takes ashes and he makes them beautiful. That's what Jesus was doing on this day. He was saying, I know you're hungry, but let's look beyond your stomach right now to something more spiritual and eternal. And I think the crowd was excited about it. You know, what they were hearing is, yeah, bread all the time. Let's do this. He says we don't have to work for bread We're going to get bread free. They probably thought, oh, no work, yay. Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus wasn't telling them or us not to work. Otherwise, the rest of God's word would be wrong. What he's saying is don't strive for things that are temporary. Don't make that your focus. Your focus should be pursuing God, pursuing the things of God. Their response was, man, what do we do? Sign us up. How do we do this? How do we do this? You know, and and, and the idea is they want to now take control of it. They want to say, how do we do the works of God, right? How do we take control of this issue? And it's just like us as human beings. You know, then we'll do it ourselves. Let me do it myself. The tendency to believe that we can do enough good things to earn heaven or God's approval. And maybe you've been there where you thought you could do or you had to do enough good things to keep God happy. But I want to tell you the very best things you've ever done and the very best things you will ever do does not make you worthy of God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness. He gives that because he's great, not because you are. But here they are saying, what do we do? They're asking, where do we need to sign? What do we need to jump through? And this makes sense because these are people that have never experienced the grace and the mercy of God. They're saying, how do we do this? Jesus' answer, believe in the one he sent. Believe in me. Well, that seems kind of simple. Believe in me. Okay, now what? What does believe mean? What does it mean to believe? We're going to look at that more deeply in a moment, but I tell you, it means much more than just an intellectual assent to a certain set of facts. It's more than just head knowledge. And we're gonna talk about that momentarily, so hold on to that that idea So Jesus tells them to believe in him, and they do something interesting. And it makes sense to me. They bring up Moses. See the connection? Watch. He says, uh, you need this eternal bread. They say, okay, how do we do the works of God? He says, believe in me. And they're like, oh, okay, believe in you. So he's somebody special. He must be like a prophet. He's like a prophet. He's like Moses. They think of the, most, the biggest prophet in their knowledge that they've studied and heard about their whole lives was Moses. They see a connection. Moses gave our fathers bread from heaven, manna. So what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do that's more powerful or greater than Moses? Tell us, is the bread that you're going to give us better? I mean, I can see the connection. I can see the train of thought what signs can you do, they ask him. Are you more powerful than Moses? Now this is incredible to ask Jesus what signs can he do. After all the signs, he's already done. It's so insulting, right? How can they ask Jesus? Of course, they don't really realize who he is yet, but how could they ask him that? But Jesus wasn't insulted. He just responded. Jesus responds, hey, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. Who's was my father, and now he gives you the bread of heaven. The bread, the one who will truly satisfy your hunger. The one who gives life to the world, it says. And they say, give us the bread always. Give us the bread always. And you can see the crowd is starting to come along, right? They're taking another step. They're like another step towards true belief, right? Wow, this guy's a prophet, I step towards him. They're starting to really get in to the things he's saying. But he's gonna keep going and he's gonna take them deeper and deeper into this metaphor until he blows their mind. All right. Let's read the next part of the passage, verse 35. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So the crowd is beginning to get a glimpse of of, that Jesus is more than they thought, more than a prophet perhaps, more than just a provider of free stuff. And so they're asking, who is this guy anyway? Who is this guy? Recognizing who Jesus truly is becomes foundational to our belief. If you do not understand who truly who Jesus truly is how can you believe in him right now this is the first of 8 I am statements found in the book of John the first of 8 I am statements that Jesus makes in the book of John he says I am the bread of life now this makes us think of what remember in Exodus when Moses says to God he says who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am who I am, right? And so now here's Jesus using the same term, equating himself with God, right? I am the bread of life. So it's interesting because in this passage, he equates coming to him with eating of him and believing in him with drinking of him. Okay, so again, he's taking the crowd a little deeper. They're, they're confused. They're trying to figure, out. how do you do that? Now, when he says that he was going to give them something that would make them never hunger, do you think this meant that they would never be hungry for pita bread or hummus again? You think that's what it meant? No, that's not what it means. Was he saying that they will never have a need or feel sick or have a down moment? No. He's saying that of the spiritual need that they have that nothing else can fill, he can satisfy it. We have a need within us, a spiritual need, that sex, drugs, alcohol, food, fame, power cannot fill. It will never fill that need. There is only one person who can satisfy that need, and that hunger can only be satisfied with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying to them. He's saying, eat and drink of me and be fully satisfied. So he's taking their physical situation of needing bread to survive and he's relating it to something spiritual. He's saying, just like I have satisfied your physical hunger, I want to satisfy your, your spiritual hunger miraculously. All right. So he's literally saying, this is for you and me, listen to this. As the bread of heaven, if we consume all that he is, if we take into ourselves and digest his sacrifice, his resurrection, his love, if we, if we take all of that into us, we will be nourished in a spiritual and eternal way that gives us life forever. That's what he's saying. That just like physical food comes into our stomach, it's broken down, and all the nutrients do their thing to provide everything that our body needs for physical strength, he's saying that spiritually he wants us to take him in like that so that he could Reside within us and give us spiritual life. Now let's talk about belief. I said we were going to talk about it. And if you are tuned out at all today, please tune in at least for this. Right? This is the most important part. So stop playing Wordscapes or Solitaire or Candy Crush or texting your BFF. And tune in. The dictionary defines belief to feel sure of the truth of something or to agree with a certain number of facts. And this refers to intellectual understanding. right? But the Bible talks about belief and faith differently. There's a deeper meaning and it involves commitment and action. Think about the verses like In Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Think of the scripture that says we believe and therefore we speak. Because we believe, we must take action. Think about in James chapter 2 where it says faith without works is dead. So that means that somehow faith or belief without works to go with it somehow isn't. Faith or belief? Somehow, it's, it's different with spiritual belief and faith. And I have some scenarios I want to read to you that I think may help us understand the difference between just belief and faith. Are you ready? All right. Most people believe that Alexander the Great existed, I assume. And when he was alive, he was a great political leader and protector right, a valiant soldier, however, he's dead now. So although the people then had faith in him to lead, they no longer have faith in him, and we don't have faith in him because he's dead. However, we still believe he existed. There are facts, but there's no faith applied to that. Most people believe it's important to eat healthy and to exercise regularly. However, most people do not personally eat healthy or exercise regularly regularly. They believe a certain set of facts is true, but they've not committed themselves to those facts. They have belief, but not faith to act. Let me tell you a story. There's an experimental commercial airliner. It's about to take its maiden flight overseas. Three people are about to board the plane. The first... The first passenger was the engineer of the plane. He designed the entire fuselage, and he is the best friend of the pilot, whom he considers to be very competent. He's excited about the flight. He can't wait. He runs in, buckles himself up, looks out the window, he's ready to go. The second passenger was a businessman who flies all the time for work. He finds flying boring. He entered the plane, pulled out a magazine, sat down, buckled up, began to read, and could not care less about what was going on. The third passenger was a man who's terrified to fly. He's only on the plane because he has no choice. He has to get to this far off city. He sits down, buckles up, closes his eyes and prays that he will sleep until the plane lands. All three passengers hold a varied set of beliefs about the plane and their flight. But they all demonstrated faith by getting on the plane. They all believed that the plane would get them there and they demonstrated the same amount of faith. It took the same amount of faith of each of them, regardless of the set of beliefs they held, to step onto that plane. Last story. You're hiking in the mountains on a beautiful sunny day. You come to a cliff with a deep valley below. You look across the canyon and you can barely see the other side but stretching across this chasm is a footbridge. Again, you look down in the valley thousands of feet below and you look at the footbridge. It looks sturdy. (laughs) And you see people crossing on that bridge. The question is, do you have the faith to step onto that bridge? you have a certain amount of facts. It's sturdy, people are walking on it, you can't get to the other side without going on the bridge, those are the facts. But you haven't demonstrated faith until you've stepped out and you put your weight on that bridge and you say, I'm basing everything on my belief. That's the type of belief that the Bible talks about. In this passage where Jesus is taking them, they already believed that he was a good man. They believed he was a prophet. They'd seen him do some miracles. They were getting free bread. They believed he existed. But Jesus was saying, you're not looking to know me. Because you see, when we know the facts about Jesus, that's one thing but when we say god here's my life now we are actively believing we are in faith giving all that we have to him which now that means that everything that we do is a result of the belief in which we have if jesus is the bridge And our faith is the stepping on, then that bridge takes us to the other side where we are reconciled with the Father. Do you get it? Jesus is that bridge. And some of us today may have made a mental idea, an intellectual idea that, yeah, I believe Jesus existed. I haven't believed he was the Son of God. And yeah, maybe he died and rose again. I think I believe that too. I've heard that. Most of my life, I believe it, but have you committed yourself to it? Because I'm telling you right now, if you read further in James chapter two, it tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble, they have an intellectual assent that he exists. Somehow belief is more than just Thinking it, it's more than just saying a prayer once when you were a kid. It's an active belief in our life that leads us in a walk with him, where he begins to change our heart and change us, where we begin to shed the things that that hold us down. And our walk is not perfect, which is not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to surrender to him. It's not about perfection, it's about pursuit. He pursues us perfectly, and we pursue him. Listen to the statement by A.W. Tozer. It says, the most important thing about a man or woman is what they believe about God. Do you think that's true? I do most important, because it talks about, well, then if they know God, then they've hopefully accepted Jesus. And then if they've accepted Jesus because of the whole set of things that I assume they believe, then it's going to speak to their whole life and it's going to lead them down this whole path and the choices they make and this walk. I make that assumption, so I think that statement is true. But I want to tell you, if you only have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is and you never put your trust in Jesus, then this statement isn't true for you. Because you're not making decisions based in the word of God. You're not really seeking the Lord. And as a matter of fact, you feel completely isolated and dead where he's concerned. You can feel it. You know there's something wrong. There's there's no life in your relationship with God. Some of you have never made that commitment to him. And some of you did a long time ago, but you just feel as dead as a doornail and God is calling us all to step onto that bridge and to walk in that walk with him being reconciled to the Father an active life of believing not just once a long time ago but every day to continue to believe through all seasons of your life you know there are seasons that are dry I get it there are seasons that are hard totally understand that. But one thing we know is in every season, God is still there. God is still with us. So Jesus brings it back to them again in verse 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, say believes, has eternal life. And he says, I am the bread of life. He's saying it to them again, whoever believes, and they're probably thinking, what do you mean believe? Believe. Jesus did something really interesting that we don't get in Western mindset right here. He takes the crowd, uh, he he begins to reassure them by talking about the plan of the Father. He says, this is the plan of the Father all along, and he's gonna give me these people, and I'm gonna keep them until the very end. And he's telling the crowd, this is my Father's will. What is he saying to them? They would understand. What he's saying to them is this, is that this this plan has been in existence. I'm simply walking out my Father's will. This is not about me. He's saying this is not my agenda. I'm not trying to take advantage of you. I want you to understand that this is about God the Father. And if you come to me, you will have life. I love how he says it's the will of the Father. And sometimes when we hear the word will, we think it's like a legal document, like a a piece of paper that God wrote a long time ago and stuck in a safe. And, And it is an understanding and an agreement and a promise. But his will is so much greater. Do you know the word here actually implies it's his heart? Jesus is saying, it's the heart of my Father that I do this. I do the heart of my Father. Isn't that amazing? Do you know when you pray, God, your will be done, you're saying, God, your heart be done. Think about that. That is so much better than a legal agreement where you're like, oh God, just do what you want if you really don't want to do what I want. Mm. That's what we think. But instead, we're, we're, what we're actually praying is, God, give me your heart for me. That's a beautiful thing. Give me your heart for this situation. Give us your heart for Awaken Tijuana. What you want to happen. So the Jews begin to grumble and Jesus face and you know the Jews are the Pharisees, right? There's, there's three different groups of players here. We have the crowd, which is all the people. We have the disciples in Jesus, and then we have the Jews, it calls it, but it means the Pharisees are religious leaders. They grumble, and Jesus basically repeats the whole thing for them again, like, maybe you didn't hear me. He says it again. Now here, we could go into something called the Calvinist-Arminian debate. If you don't know what that is, good for you. (laughs) No, it's basically... The the, the, the Calvinistic view is on the sovereignty of God. The Arminian view is about the responsibility of man and how we respond to God and how God calls people into relationship. And this debate's been going on for years. Uh, The Bible was written first, by the way, okay? And the principles that both men took to develop these systems of thought were from God's Word. Somebody actually asked me once, Gee, is the Bible Calvinistic? I was like, "Oh no, the Bible is the Bible. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Um, and people are like, how do you reconcile these two ideas? They seem so, so different. You know? Aren't they in, in contradiction? How do you reconcile them? And I think that Spurgeon put it beautifully. Charles Spurgeon is a pastor, a theologian, and he was a Calvinist and somebody asked him, how do you reconcile these two things, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? And he said, I never reconcile friends. What was he saying? He was saying that both of these concepts are found in the word. They both are, and we don't have to reconcile them. We can understand them as truth. Both of them lead people to Christ, and we don't exactly know how they fit together. There's another great illustration uh, that was by Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist, and he's still living, just barely, but he is. And um, somebody asked him, "Can you tell me how you reconcile these two things?" And he took out a picture of a triangle, and he held it up, and it was a two-dimensional picture, and it just showed, you know, three lines connected as a triangle. And he said, "A triangle is width and height." He said, "This triangle will never be a circle." There's no way, it's three straight lines, it's never going to be a circle. Then he took out another picture, and he said, this is the same triangle, but you're looking at it from above, and what it was was a cone with the fat end on the table and the point sticking up. He said, this is a circle. This is the same triangle that you saw before. What's the difference? He said, the difference is your perspective and dimension. He said, as human beings, we see in two or three dimensions. Right? We, can, we, we have a hard time understanding concepts from God's word because we are finite. And he said, however, God is multidimensional. He can have something like that in his word, and it fits together beautifully, and it makes sense. So I'm going with that. I like that. All right. So which is true. Both concepts are found in God's word. Love that. All right, let's continue to read. Look at John 6, 51. We're almost done here. Thank you for your patience. It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus restates this metaphor again, and now he blows their minds. He takes it a step further, and he says, I am the bread of life. The bread of life for the world is my flesh. All right, the word he used was actually sort of an offensive word. It was a very harsh word. He didn't have to choose that word, but he did. And he used it in verse 51, 53, 54, 55, and 56. He kept saying the word, flesh. He was trying to get their attention. Even though the crowd was perplexed, even though the Jews were ticked off, the Jewish leaders. And even though the disciples were undoubtedly confused, Jesus stuck with it and he went further into it. Why? Trying to bring understanding, not trying to make them angry, trying to provoke them to thought, trying to show them who they were believing in and what his purpose is. Why did he have to say that? You can just hear the disciples thinking that, right? Why did he have to say that? Belief in Christ is more than an intellectual assent. It is full reliance upon him, who he is, and what he's done. Jesus was saying, look, it's not enough for you just to follow me for bread. That's not going to answer your true problem. I can feed your belly today, tomorrow you'll die and go to hell. Saying, wake up. So Jesus makes a series of statements, four statements in this passage that must have been like a battering ram to the minds of those who were listening. He said, unless you eat and drink of me, you have no life. He said, he who feeds and drinks has life. He says, My flesh and blood is true food and drink. And then he says, Whoever feeds and drinks on my flesh and blood abides in me, and I abide in him. And then he summarizes the whole passage with the same thought again. This bread is not physical bread, but spiritual bread, and will completely satisfy and nurture you for eternity. He wanted people to believe. I've already said it wasn't enough for the people just to come and get bread. It wasn't about them seeing his spectacular miracles. It wasn't about them following a prophet. It was about them knowing Jesus, the savior. He wanted them to consume all he was, get it digested into who they are so that it would cause growth and affect everything they think and say and do. He called that abiding. That type of belief requires commitment. And the implication of this passage is clear for you and me today. The only faith that saves is the type of faith that leads to commitment by actively believing and receiving the sacrifice in the life of Christ. Coming to this church won't save you. Tithing, doesn't save you, baptism can't save you. Saying religious things doesn't save you. Good works don't save you. It's true belief in Jesus Christ that saves you. I wanna ask you to, to bow your heads and just listen to me for a second. Maybe some of you today. Actually, let's pray real quick. Father, thank you. Thank you for these that are here. God, thank you for those that are listening online. God, we pray that you would draw by your spirit those who have never trusted you. That you would draw back those who have been calling themselves Christians but have seen no life or growth or, and they feel dead, that you would do a work in their hearts, God. Thank you. Thank you that you desire for us to believe and you're offering for us today to take all of you into us that it may give us eternal life that we would be part of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, with your heads bowed, I just wanna ask you, if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've never done that, maybe you know that Jesus exists, you believe that, and you believe in God, but you have never committed yourself to him. You've never believed in such a way that you're saying, I am stepping out on that bridge. I'm staking all that I have on you. If you've never done that, I wanna pray with you right now that you would come to know Jesus. So, would you pray with me? Just follow along as I pray. Father, I come to you right now. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I need you. I want you in my life. I want all of you. I step onto that bridge in faith. I trust you today. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. With your heads bowed, if if you said that prayer with me, nobody else looking around, if you said that prayer with me, would you lift up your hand? If you prayed that prayer this morning, I see your hand. I see your hand, I see your hand, I see your hand, I see your hand here, I see your hand. Anybody else? Says Pastor Jim this morning, I see your hand over on my left. This morning I made a decision to step out on that bridge, I prayed that prayer give my life to Jesus. Raise your hand. Anybody here? I see your hand. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for the work that you did in their hearts. I want to talk to those of you who are believers. You know what I'm going to say. if your spiritual life seems dead in the water, if you are living for self and you know that even though you've called yourself a Christian, I want to urge you, I want to urge you to step out on that bridge in faith and to believe, to actively believe and to live for Christ. Do any of you this morning want to lift your hand and say, Pastor Jim, that's me. That's me. Is there anybody here? I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. Oh, God, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for the work you did in us today. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's about your greatness, it's not about ours. Thank you, God, that it's about how much you love us. Even when we don't do the right thing, you still love. Thank you, God, that your word says that you keep those who believe. Oh God, we actively believe in you. Our lives are committed to you, and we thank you and praise you. Everybody look at me for a second. We're going to sing a song together. And as we sing, if you lifted your hand, there were probably 12 people that lifted their hand. And I want to invite you to come down here. See these people up here? Some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Come on up and get prayer. They want to not only pray for you, but they want to give you a Bible that can help you uh, and get you hooked up with different things or whatever you might need. So I want to encourage you not to be embarrassed, but just to come down while we all stand and sing. Okay, God, let's, everybody stand up and let's give him some encouragement. And let's sing together.